0: Sentire Media
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 28, the year 1000 and life for the average Giuseppe. So, before our last recap episode, we very sneakily snuck by the year 1000 with Otto III and his partner in empire, Pope Sylvester II. But what to make of this year 1000? We now have images of a moment of great fear on the part of medieval society that the world would end in the year 1000. This is associated with descriptions of mass hysteria thieves and murderers repenting, churches filled with people fearing Armageddon, wolves living happily along with the sheep, and so on. This was attributed to an interpretation of the Bible, particularly St. John's Apocalypse, and certain prophets which spoke of Jesus' thousand-year reign. The truth of the matter is, it was mostly rubbish. The whole Millennium Scare business seems to have been fabricated in the 19th century. In reality, we have no real evidence of mass hysteria and repentance of people supposedly congregating in Rome to receive the Pope's blessing, to then look up at the heavens on the 31st of December to see if the world would end. Nope, no real evidence. Also, we must consider that a worldwide calendar was far from being a thing. Not only that, but people may have different reckonings of the calendar from one duchy or principality to another. When did the year start? After Christmas? At Easter? Finally, we have to consider a society in which death was always round the corner, life expectancy was very low, pestilence and famine were not rare, and constant fighting was a thing of the day. So, when you can kick the bucket at almost any moment, and often do, Armageddon is just another of the many ways to go. So, what was life like for the people in this period, for the average Joe, or better in our case, for the average Giuseppe? Well, first of all, let's look at where they lived. In ancient Roman times, people would have mostly lived in stone houses. But, with the invasion of the Germanic tribes, who had used only wood until that time, and the gradual loss of the skills needed to work stone, wooden houses became more common, especially in the growing rural areas outside the cities. The average house would have been made of large wooden poles stuck in the ground, and with walls made of clay, straw, and cobbles while the roof would have been made of wooden planks covered with tufts of grass. The dwelling was composed usually of a single, large, multifunctional room, and the building had no windows but a door which was the only source of light and to let out the smoke of the cooking and heating fire which was usually placed in the centre of the room. Richer households may have continued to use stone and even have an upper floor, but no more than that there would also be private bedrooms and some sort of hall where power was exercised. As well as the home, noble families had a chapel and possibly rooms for workers and farmers, as well as work buildings such as stables, workshops and so on. In time, all of this had become, with the spread of the feudal system, the castrum, the medieval castle community. Inside the cities, you could find stone houses also among the poorer people who would simply recycle materials from existing buildings. Indeed, in the Middle Ages, many ancient Roman buildings were disassembled and spread across the city. There were, however, also buildings in the city more similar to the rural wooden ones, except in the Byzantine-controlled areas where there was an attempt to maintain the ways of the ancient empire. In poorer houses, both in urban and in rural areas, you could find very simple furnishings, such as mats, furs and chests to hold clothes and linen. The bed would be straw mats. Most people would sit on the mats and furs on the floor. Aristocratic houses, on the other hand, had benches, stools and tables, as well as carpets and curtains to divide the areas of the home. They even had shelves holding up containers for food and dishware which was usually made of terracotta or wood like in the poorer houses. The rich already slept in beds that had frames and goose feather mattresses. The toilets in all cases would have been outside, with waste collectors going around and filling up barrels which were then used as fertilizer. Wasn't that a nice job to have? With regard to clothes, perhaps the most interesting thing is that clothes had to reflect your social status. It was considered unacceptable to dress above your status, and even the rich got badgered by the clergy about not being too vain and wasting money on appearance. So, the lower classes would dress in undyed grey, red was the colour of authority, and black of the aristocracy. The latter would also go into more elaborate decorations with gold thread and jewels. This got so out of hand that in later centuries laws called suntuaria were passed to limit the levels of extravagance with regard to clothes. Now, as extravagant or as simple as the clothes may be, the bodies that one could find under those clothes would have been rather on the stinky side. While the Byzantines and the Arabs considered bathing as frequently as possible important, in the West, it was even frowned upon, such as when Theophanu and her clean Byzantine ways made her way over to become the wife of Otto II. Note the only people in the West taking any kind of frequent baths at this time were the monks in the monasteries, who would take steam baths. The teachings of St. Jerome from the mid-4th century, still held. Indeed, he had spoken out against the practice of bathing in hot water, which would excite people too much. A rule at the time was, wash your hands every day, your feet rarely, and your head never. Things got a little better after the year 1000, and in the 11th century, with the rediscovery of the classic culture, public baths came back into fashion. Speaking of the body, what was the health situation? Well, as you can imagine, not much better than the hygiene one. We have to remember that we are in a period in which religion dominates culture, and so people were taught to worry more about their immortal souls rather than the shell it lived in. Therefore, the best you could probably get was some herbal remedies. This was at least until the school of Salerno, brought back the work of antique medicine of men such as Hippocrates and the more advanced Arab medicine. Speaking of schools, education in general and the conservation of culture happened mainly in the monasteries, where all the studying happened. If you were poor, you were probably handed a shovel almost as soon as you could walk, and if you were rich, you were stuck on a horse almost as soon as you could walk, and you were taught to hack at things with a sword. This was helped a little bit by various attempts at a cultural renaissance, for example under Charlemagne, or later under Otto III. But widespread cultural revival was still quite a way off. Going back to the body, you also needed to keep it going, so food is another question we need to look at. The meetings of Roman and Germanic peoples that occurred after the fall of the Western Roman Empire also brought about a meeting of foods. Indeed, we had the meeting of the traditional Mediterranean diet, composed of bread, wine and oil, with the Germanic diet of farm animal meats, game meats and forest fruits and berries. This made for a pretty balanced diet especially if you added the fact that Christianity also intervened in people's eating habits. What with being required to eat light on a Wednesday, Friday, during Lent and during Advent, there were around 150 days a year in which Christians were required to abstain from protein-rich foods. Speaking of calendars, we said at the beginning of the episode, there wasn't yet a real consensus on when the year actually started. Was it on the 1st of January with the circumcision of Christ? On the 25th of March with the Incarnation? Or Easter perhaps? Christmas? One thing people did agree on was the concept of the week, which was introduced starting in the 8th century. Although there was, there was no universal consensus on the start of the year, they did know by this time what year they were actually in. And this was thanks to a monk called dionysius exiguus the name means either humble or small and he chose it himself not because he was short but because he wished to belittle himself towards the other in his opinion more important dionysius's he was a scythian by birth an area between modern-day bulgaria and romania but he ended up settling in rome where he became a great scholar and translator. It was the period of the little Gothic Renaissance that saw such men as Cassiodorus and Boethius at the start of the 6th century. Our man Dionysius is the one credited with inventing the Anno Domini system, that is the system of years that is still in use today, but with the growing use of CE and BCE instead of AD and BC. Here's a reason we are in 2018 and not in some other year. Knowing that they already had a time reference and a calendar that worked pretty well around the year 1000, one wonders how they filled that time when they weren't working, sleeping, praying or studying. Well, first of all, there wasn't much time left after that. But they could go for a game of bowls or perhaps bet on some dice if they were poor and the time for leisure were the various religious festivals such as the patron saint of the respective town. Football wouldn't have come around for another couple of centuries. The nobles had more free time and could put on dances and organised jousts, which at the beginning weren't the ones you see in the films with lances and horses, but brutal free-for-all hand-to-hand battles. Theatre at the time was frowned upon by the church, but the wandering minstrels and storytellers were tolerated. However, the clergy tried to oppose them with religious representations from the lives of the saints and from the scriptures. So, that's what the life of the average Giuseppe would be like around the time. We spent ages and episodes looking at the big names, the Theodorics and Rotheries and Charlemagnes and Ottos. And then we've just had a look at the little guys for perhaps the second time in a few episodes. But what about the middle ones, all those Italian nobles who were always acting up? Well, Berengarius II and then Otto. Really changed the face of northern Italian nobility. Indeed, the families who held power around the year 1000 were completely different from those only a century before. I'll go through a couple of the names now if you would like to look some of them up, otherwise, feel free to phase out. We had the Arduinici in and around Turin, the Aleramici. In southern Piedmont, the region of Turin but south of Turin, the Obertengi of the northwest Apennines, the Gisalbertingi of Bergamo, the Canossa of the swampy Po area, remember them, and the Tuscan families of the Guidi, Cadolingi, and Gerardeschi. Now, maybe I'll post that list on the website if anyone does actually want to look into the history of any of these families. Speaking of Tuscany, it is in this period, at the end of the 10th centuries, that surnames started to appear around Tuscany and a bit further south towards the Lazio, close to Rome area. Now, the mention of these various families brings me to a consideration If we really wanted to do a thorough and proper job of doing a history of Italy with its fragmented past, I would have to go and spend a month or so in every province in the country to read up in local libraries on local history and end up with a couple thousand episodes. I regret to say I really can't do that. So we'll have to settle for a big picture approach with more in-depth looks at particularly important or interesting local situations my apologies. Who knows, maybe in future we can do a history of Tuscany or Venice or Liguria and so on. Or maybe that would just be so incredibly boring. Anyway, one step at a time. For now, that's all for this episode. Thank you very much to everyone for listening. I'm particularly pleased this week because we can announce not one, Not two, but three whole new Patreon supporters. Great week, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks to our new friends and supporters, Vincenzo, Jeff, and Stephen, and, of course, our good old friends, top donor, Sen, and then Shelby, Benjamin, Preston, Roberta, and Sean. Thanks very much to everyone. Remember that if you want to get in touch, you can drop an email hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, you can click through to our social media, have a look at some timelines, some maps, which can help you to navigate our complicated history. Now, the great generosity of the listeners means that in October, when it comes time to renew the website, I'll probably be able to make a few improvements. Thanks again very much. And until next time, arrivederci.
0: and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.